Our scripture reading is from chapter 1 of the book of Genesis and the Gospel of John. We begin with Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And now from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. He was the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was not made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word of the Lord. Uh, it might have been 30 years now, 25 years ago, and I've, I've said this before, but I was on this dock at Saranac Lake, New York, at a Young Life camp when I was working there um, after my senior year of high school. And I was there late at night with this one fellow worker, and we laid down on the dock and looked up at the night sky without the, the light pollution that we have here in D.C., Looking up at this vast sky, the stars, you could just see so many. And in the course of an hour laying there, looking up at this sky filled with just stars, the moon, it was one of those uh, moonless nights, totally clear, we saw 25, 30 shooting stars in one hour. Just the most amazing thing. And I remember thinking about that and just being blown away by the vastness of the universe. Where was this? Where was this happening? And who am I? In fact, all you have to do is try to begin to comprehend it, and the vastness of the universe is pretty mind-blowing. It makes us feel pretty small, too. The vastness of the universe, just look at Earth. Look at this picture of Earth. So there we are, right? We're the sort of people that think we're pretty big deals. The, the world revolves around us in some way. And we even think of like our, our country as a pretty big deal, or our city, you know, we're DC, powerful but we're barely the tip of an arrow from out in outer space. And yet the earth is big. If you try to walk around it, it'll take you a while. And that has nothing to do with the solar system that we're in. If you look at the solar system, you know, there's our sun. You can only get a part of it because of how big the sun is. The, the blue arrow is pointing at the third rock from the sun. That's the earth. That pinkish arrow on the far right is pointing at something we're not sure if it's a planet or not. It's called Pluto. It's as far out as you can get. But relatively speaking, this is how wide the universe is just from middle to end. And, and that, is, that is actually known to be uh, the earth to the sun, sorry, the earth to the sun, just the earth to the sun is 93 million miles. So a trip to Florida, if you drive to Orlando, let's say it's about a thousand miles. So just to drive to the sun, if you could drive there on a highway, it would be 93,000 trips to Florida. If you were driving continually at the speed of the highway, it would take you 150 years to drive to the sun. And we are the third rock from the sun. Our solar system is massive. And our solar system is revolving around, it's a solar, a sun, which is a star, right? Our solar system is planets revolving around one particular star. Our particular star that we call the sun is one of billions of solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy. This is the Milky Way galaxy. That arrow is pointing at our solar system. 
It is one little blippy fleck, one little tiny dit in the Milky Way galaxy. Each one of those lights or clusters of lights is its own star. There are 200 to 400 billion, billion B stars in the Milky Way. Each one of those is its own solar system, probably with planets revolving around it. The Milky Way in width is 120,000 light years wide. Okay, light years is a hard thing, but one light year, one light year, if you were to travel one light year, is six billion car trips to Florida. And it's 120,000 light years wide. Our, our galaxy is massive, but it is part of a cluster of galaxies called the Virgo supercluster. Inside of the Virgo supercluster are clusters of several thousand galaxies. Our galaxy is just one little cluster in this supercluster, each having billions of solar systems inside of it. And the known universe contains millions of superclusters of galaxies. That one little dit is our Virgo supercluster. Okay, we can't, we can't do this, right? So let me make it a little simpler for you. If our solar system, really wide, really wide, you know, our entire solar system, not just the third rock from the sun, but all the way out past Pluto, if our solar system was the size of one grain of sand, okay, then the Milky Way galaxy, just our galaxy, would be the size of this auditorium filled with sand 25,000 times. Okay, our entire solar system, one grain of sand, the Milky Way galaxy, 25,000 auditoriums filled with sand. If the distance between the Earth to the sun was the thickness of a piece of paper, okay, piece of paper's not very thick, thickness of a piece of paper, then our Milky Way galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. That's just our galaxy. And the known universe, the known universe would be a stack of papers 62 million miles high. In other words, you're not that big. The universe is massive, and essentially it's unfathomable. And so when we ask the question, life on Earth, why are we here? Is there purpose, or was it just random? Well, the scientists will tell you life was far from inevitable, and it was a series of lucky events, like winning a cosmic lottery multiple times over. There are five pillars of existence for life on Earth. The five main pillars are the sun. Our distance from the sun had to be precise, neither too close nor too far, so that liquid water would exist here. It wouldn't just be frozen or wouldn't just uh, evaporate or be gaseous. It's our, secondly, not just the distance from the sun, but our magnetic core, which protects the atmosphere from solar winds and from cosmic radiation. The atmosphere itself, which acts as a greenhouse sort of effect that prevents the water from freezing. Water itself, which we all need, all of life needs, and oxygen, which we also sort of need. These ingredients are all interdependent on one another and had to be present and combined in the perfect order and amounts for the possibility of life. It's not just luck, it is sheer dumb luck. So why are we here? You and I. How did this happen? 
Christianity makes the claim that it is the design of a loving creator who created the universe and us with intention and purpose. The ancient myths all have a different way of looking at it. All the ancient myths say it was a violent power struggle struggle between forces of good and evil that birthed creation in this battle between good and evil, powerful and violent. Loving creator with design, a war. It was the other idea. But our modern secular theory is that it was spontaneous, random set of events, a chain of chemical reactions that happened over trillions of years, and we're here. So why are you here? Does life have purpose? Does it have meaning? If we go purely on a modern secular approach, by reason and empirical proof alone, simply by reason and empirical proof, following the scientific method, there is no meaning, there's no truth, doesn't exist. And the hard part with that is if you actually play it out for us, because our modern assumptions include things like, things, priorities, values, like um, equality, rights, justice, things that we think are pretty important. All humans are equally valuable, endowed with dignity, every one of us endowed with dignity. We, we believe that there's a deserving of rights, of protections, of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, our modern assumptions of values also include this, this um, ideal of love, appreciation of beauty, a sense of morality, what's right and wrong. And the examples of that are things like the power of music to move you, to inspire you, or the sense of awe and beauty at a sunset, or even things like romance, friendship, the love of a mom for her newborn baby. But on empirical proof and reason alone, these things don't really exist. Our sense of justice, that feeling of love that you have inside of you, it's just biochemical predispositions, sorry, it's like a genetic thing that evolved in our ancestors that coded you to be more likely to survive. If you go back, you know, however many years, the, the homo sapiens that had feelings of love for their babies or a sense of fairness and justice and kindness and generosity, that genetic coding inside of them was more likely to cause them to um, have increased communal bonds, and communal bonds were necessary for survival of the fittest when we were uh, creatures that can't fly and don't really have strong claws. In other words, your feeling of love your sense of right or wrong, your awe of beauty, your idea that dignity and justice matter can't be proven. As a previous century philosopher put it, you cannot prove an ought from an is. Science can tell you what is, how things are done, but not what you ought to do with them. As I've told people before, science can tell you how to split an atom but not whether you ought to or where and how you should use it. Just you can. There's no morality to it by being able to do it. 
based on provable and observable kind of reason alone, there's no such thing as dignity, human dignity or worth. We're just one of creatures across this vast universe. There's no such thing as actual justice or beauty or love. There's no big purpose and meaning. And therefore, you can't say this is good or right. It might be your opinion, but you might actually be wrong. In a billion years from now, we'll find out how wrong you were. Nothing you do or achieve matters. Bertrand Russell, a philosopher from the previous century, summed it up this way. It's, it's a little bleak, but he said, man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. His origin, growth, hopes and fears, loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. And all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, inspiration, and human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. We're here by accident. Life has no meaning, so get over it. All of you are going to die. That's what he's saying. And in 10 billion years, it will not matter whether you are Mother Teresa or a mass murderer. And if you think about that, that's actually sort of true if we can't, you know, if we don't start from the foundation that we do as a Christian. You don't even have to go back, you go ahead 10 billion years. Like, just go back, try to go back 10,000 years. Do you know about some woman who lived on the Indian subcontinent 10,000 years ago who happened to be really generous and nice and you talk about her all the time? Do you know about some guy who walked into a building with a gun and shot all sorts of people 10,000 years ago? No. Doesn't matter which one you are. Unless there's another story. And Christianity holds that there is another story. It's a story that begins in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And as Dean talked about last week as he kicked off this series in Genesis that we're in, the, the story of Genesis 1 and 2 and those early stories is not about how it happened or when it happened but who and why. And that includes the answers to who we are and why we are here. And that gets at the two main modern questions that I've said we're going to talk about not just in this series, but we're always going to be talking about here as long as I'm probably alive, and it's authority and anthropology. Authority and anthropology are the issues of our day. They have been for about two to 300 years, and they will be, I guarantee you, for another 100 to 200 Things don't move philosophically as fast as they feel like they are. We are where we are because of things that were being thought of 200 years ago. And authority and anthropology are this. Anthropology is who you are. What does it mean to be human? Human identity and worth and dignity, human rights, sex and gender, all these things that are part of the debates of politics, of morality, of what we value. What does it mean to be human? Who are you? And then the authority question is how do you know? How do you know what you know? Why do you believe what you believe? About yourself and about life in general. The authority question is the starting point, though. We always want to get to identity, sex, and then sex. But the Bible starts with the authority question. Start there. Do not assume you know it. You've been a Christian for decades. You probably are an Americanized Christian if you've lived here most of your life. 
The authority question begins with this, with this answer, in the beginning, God. What we get from the very beginning of the revealed scriptures in the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible is that the God of the universe is without beginning, cause, and equals. He is the source of all things. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read that God creates and doesn't just create, he assigns value, meaning, worth, and he relates to his creation. And in that sense, Genesis 1 and 2 challenges our modern American kind of Christian religious approach to God. Most of us will do this. We will think of God, perceive God in a way that actually matches our politics or our chosen identity or our culture, not the other way around. And we do this so imperceptibly and over the course of so much time that we don't even realize that we're lumping one with the other. And we are shaping our view of God on the basis of our politics, our identity, our culture, and not the other way around. What we think, what we desire, what we want, what we assume to be true, shapes the God that we think we believe in. And it's why many Christians today are making the choice of what church to belong to or not to belong to one at all on the basis of their politics, their identity, their culture of choice, and not on the basis of truth. The God of the Bible is a self-revealing God. We don't get to decide who he is or what is right or good or true. Instead, we discover who God is, and we understand ourselves and the world around us as we discover and understand who God is. The God of the Bible is a creator, and the creator who created is a trinity. We get this hinted at in Genesis 1 that was just read. In just the first three verses, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Just in this, we get God creates, the Spirit of God is hovering over creation, is present, and God creates with his will with his word, he says, and there is. John 1 gives us the other side of this very same story from the perspective of Jesus pre-incarnate. When John writes, in the beginning was the word, the word of God. The word was with God and was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you see how John is giving us an exact replica of Genesis 1, 1 through 3? The Word of God is the second person of the Trinity. It's God's Word that has the power to bring into existence what was not. Let there be light, and there was light. And it's God's Word that sustains keeps, preserves all that is, including us. In Genesis 1 and 2, we get the description of the Christian view that creation and life is not random, but intentional. 
And as the whole Bible reveals, the life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is integral to God's creation and his purposes in creation. We, we declared it in the, um, in the Nicene Creed about the Trinity, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in one God, Father Almighty. The Father Almighty is the maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, eternally of God, God from God, light from light, begotten, not made, goes on from there. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son is worshiped and glorified, who is spoken through the prophets. We believe in one God in three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, in eternal union, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a relationship between them. Jesus talks about it in John. In John chapter 5, we read about the nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relationship in this way. In John 5, verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples or to the crowds, I can't remember which it was here, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. And greater works than these he will show so that you may marvel. Basically, he says, look, I I don't do whatever I want. I do what the Father wants, but the Father wants what is best. The Father wills and I fulfill. And then he goes on in chapter 16 in the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says, when the Spirit comes, this is verse 13 of John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. The Spirit will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Father sends the Son. The Son fulfills the purposes of the Father. The Son and the Father extend the Holy Spirit who fulfills the purposes of the Father and the Son. You know, what's interesting if you actually look at it is they have different roles. Now, which one is on top? Who's the biggest, who's the top dog in the whole Father, Son, Holy Spirit trilogy? We tend to think about it as one of them. We think the Father, he's the one who gets to will everything, right? He's kind of in charge. But that's not how the Trinity thinks about it. It's such a warped human view to think that having different roles means different value. The Father wills. The Son says, I will submit to the Father. Is the Son subordinate in value? Less God? No. The Holy Spirit never brings glory to himself. He's always pointing at the Son and the Father and the Son and the Father. Doesn't he ever want to just kind of be like, hey, I'm kind of here too. What about me? I get no credit. No. Spirit never gets credit and shouldn't if the Spirit is doing what the Spirit does. We give credit to the Spirit because we think it has to be that way. We take our own values and apply them to the Trinity. That's why we have warped relationships. That's why we have different views and values than God does of what is good and right and true. Just look at the Trinity, the life of the Trinity, the eternal life of the Trinity. The Father wills. The Son fulfills, the Spirit glorifies, equally God, equally powerful, one God, 
three persons. One of them is not jealous. One of them is not less God. And this God has been an eternal, eternal pre-creation, eternal loving union, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're invited in. We're invited in to the life of the Trinity. That's what Jesus is getting at in John chapter 17. In verse 21, we read, Jesus' prayer that the disciples may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In verse 23, he goes on to say, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Creation is a gift. Why did God create? That's a question that I've had people ask. Why did God create? Why? Why? Creation is generated from the mutual self-giving of the Trinity in eternal loving communion. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in this eternal love embrace, completely one, serving one another, fulfilling their roles mutually, mutual self-giving love, eternally. And out of that, naturally, births creation. It is the overflow of perfect loving union. And then what happens? God makes us in his image, male and female, and calls us to be fruitful and multiply as we are in eternal, well, lifelong loving union. More on that in a few weeks. Christopher West summed it up this way about why God creates God is an infinite communion of persons experiencing love bliss, and he creates us for one reason, to share that eternal love and bliss with us. Why did God create us? On one level, his eternal loving union, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was just going to do it. (laughs) It's what happens. Loving union of eternity ecstatically overflows in the sharing of that love, the spreading of that love, the sharing of that joy and that glory, and the spreading of that joy and that glory. And we have the vastness of the universe and the amazing, powerful dignity of every single one of us. And that trinity invites us in. God is saying, I want you to share in my eternal communion. the Son, the Spirit, in you now. I am in Christ, and the Spirit is in me. And one day, you and I, if our faith is in Christ, will experience the fullness of the Trinity, as if, as if God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit wants to marry us, which is the language 
of eternity if you look at Revelation. Who are you? Why are you here? That's what we're looking at in this series in Genesis. God's story, our story. We understand our story as we understand God's story. Genesis 1 and 2, which we're looking at in June and July, before we kind of race through the rest of it, August through November. Genesis 1 and 2 makes this declaration. There is a God. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he created you to share in that love and joy, his love and joy, not just now but forever. So you want to know why you're here? Who you are, your identity, what matters, what's good. You must know him. Know him as he has revealed himself. Let me read Psalm 8 again, and then we will pray. David declares, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, but crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. God, the vastness of the universe, the amazing intricacies of every, every human being, the things about us we don't understand, our biology, our chemistry, the things we're still discovering in this world, in this universe, are amazing. But we cannot figure it out on our own. We need to know you as you have revealed yourself. And as we know you, you will reveal to us who we are. Open our eyes and our hearts to you, our creator, and our authority. Amen. And we're going to go back into just time of praise and response to that message um, of who God is, singing the first and fourth verses of Holy, Holy, Holy.